Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will provide summaries and discussion of some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter over at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. And by the way, one last plug, we recently got on the new app Clever.fm, which has a nifty UI where you can get links to what we discussed right there in the player. So you can download it and, and listen there if you want to see the articles we discussed as you listen. That out of the way, I am one of your hosts, Andre Krenkov. And I am Dr. Sharon Joe. And this week, we will be discussing how Walmart is using fully driverless cars. Um, we'll talk about how AI startup funding has hit record highs uh, in Q3 of this year of nearly $18 billion. Um, we'll talk a bit about research on NLP model Alfreberta for African languages. Um, and we will also discuss, you know, AI cancer diagnosis being less accurate for dark skin. We'll talk about facial recognition yet again, but this time uh, for surveillance of Palestinians. We'll talk about uh, Tesla's full, full self-driving beta mode uh, causing issues. Um, and finally, we'll end on a fun note with machine learning shushing stress dogs. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, talking about that one. It's, it's quite fun. <laughs> so let's dive straight in. First up, we have our application and or business stories, starting off with Walmart is using fully driverless trucks to ramp up its online gro grocery business. And this is from CNBC. So just this past week, Walmart said that it started using fully driverless trucking in its online grocery business. Uh, it's parting up with a uh, Silicon Valley startup Gaddick that since August they have been operating two autonomous box trucks with no driver on a seven mile loop daily for 12 hours. And this is meant to sort of streamline uh, the uh, operations and sort of change up how the typical, um, I guess, delivery of products works uh, that, um, you know, makes it more efficient. So yeah, cool to see some actual tests of uh, trucks. I think we've been hearing about it for a long time, but this is a good, uh, you know, site that something as big as Walmart is actually starting to test and, and deploy these kinds of things. Yeah, and it's not just uh, it's not just Walmart, Kroger, the supermarket, as well as Albertsons are also uh, trying different things um, with self-driving. And that's not just self-driving trucks. It's also with, you know, neuro and um, other um, types of self-driving delivery. Uh, and it's exciting to kind of see this ramp up. Um, and with Walmart's uh, kind of announcement, this is like the biggest of uh, grocery store items. Um, so it, it's, it's quite exciting to see this uh, ramp up. Yeah, it, it, it sounds pretty interesting from a logistics perspective. It sounds like you know, before typically you had these giant distribution centers that were five or four hours from where actual stores are. And that leads to some issues uh, where you need to set up fulfillment centers close to the customer and then you can deliver less. Here it's some kind of new model that they call a hub and spoke model where you have um, kind of closer, smaller um stores where you can deliver from. And uh, I guess the hope is it'll lead to things being more efficient and really work better for online grocery orders, which is, of course, growing more and more these days. 
Right. And this program started in Arkansas uh, and now is expanding to the New Orleans area as well. Yeah, exciting to see. We also have a little uh, second article here just to mention that there's another story that self-driving tar- uh, truck startup Kodiak Robotics has raised $125 million, And apparently it's one of the last privately held uh, autonomous truck outfits. So, yeah, cool to see this growing. And um, I think it's a little surprising, you know, that this is not deployed yet. Uh, I think pretty much everyone is expecting trucks, autonomous trucks to be there and, you know, being deployed before autonomous cars uh, is something we can use. So let's get this out of the way and then get to self-driving cars. So we don't have to <laughs> There are challenges with this too. Um, and I, I do find it, you know, impressive, but yes, it is a much easier task of doing this seven mile loop every single day for 12 hours, which is what Gaddick is doing for, uh, for Walmart. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see how this progresses. I think this one is an obvious one. Um, obviously it will have, you know, worker implications, um, all those, uh, truck drivers, uh, as well, um, that are not, not as much discussed in the article. Yep. And on to our next article, uh, AI startup funding hits record high of $17.9 billion in Q3. Uh, and this is also, uh, Related to another article titled Robot Orders by Companies Surge as Labor Shortages Linger. All right. So according to the last State of AI report from CB Insights, um, the funding in AI has grown immensely. Uh, so there was $16.6 billion uh, deployed in Q2 of this year. Um, that's across uh, 588 deals. Um, and uh, now it's all the way up in Q3 to 841 deals uh, and 17.9 billion. So it's it's grown, and it looks like number of deals has grown immensely, which I'm guessing is for you know uh, deploying smaller amounts of capital. Um, and the number of billions of dollars has increased, but not not as much as the number of deals. So uh, that's that's really interesting. And also this year there were interesting mega rounds, and mega rounds are a hundred million dollars deployed for each round, and there were about 138. Um, so this is quite quite a few mega rounds uh, happening as startups get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and yeah, what are your thoughts on some of this? Yeah, this is interesting to see. I think I have not been tracking these kinds of details too closely. And, and yeah, there's interesting details here also that so far up to the year, up to now, uh, which is not yet done, we already have uh, 50 billion total with more than 2,000 deals. Um, and there's some interesting details here also that as much as 8.5 billion went to healthcare, 3.1 to fintech, and 2.6 into retail AI. So, um, yeah, interesting to see what healthcare is leading the pack uh, that much. And this is just in this quarter. And then, as you said, related, we also had this uh, article on robot orders, which is another report from the Association for Advanced Automation that uh, says that the total number of orders this year is at 29,000 with a tally value of over 1.48 billion, which is up 37% from a year ago. So also interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think in large part, healthcare is maybe leading the pack, so to speak, because, uh, because of one, the pandemic, but also because healthcare companies need a lot more upfront capital to get started. Um, so that often uh, inflates those numbers. Uh, also what's interesting that we 
we were discussing is that um, there are now uh, 119 unicorns, AI unicorns, and those are, you know, billion dollar valuations uh, for each company. And in Q3 alone, there were 13 new AI unicorns globally. Uh, and it definitely, you know, cheapens the word unicorn here. Uh, so we've also been discussing, you know, between us, uh, we're wondering whether, you know, what the number of decacorns is, you know, worth 10 billion. So maybe we should think about that a bit more. Um, no, I'm kidding. Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> maybe but, not. We'll see. We'll see how many of the unicorns stick around and then maybe we'll uh, have to reevaluate. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. The dynamics are a little bit weird with people going, you know, SPACing or I, IPOing, but largely a lot of SPACs um, going public that way, uh, pre revenue or, you know, with like questionable amounts of uh, uh, revenue and just the vision. So it, it's been an interesting year uh, in terms of fundraising. Yeah, exactly. And uh, this the second article on robotics also has some interesting details where we are seeing this increase, big increase in orders. 37% is, is a big number. And it does note that this is happening amid what some people are calling the great resignation. So in September, 4.4 4 million Americans quit their jobs and the U.S. economy has 10.4 million job openings. So certainly in robotics, uh, that is a factor that leads to greater investment. I would imagine also in AI in general, um, maybe not so much right now, but in general, that will lead to more interest in the field, I would guess. Right. Absolutely. And moving on from there to some research, uh, we have a first article here, which is University of Waterloo AI researchers introduce a new NLP model called AfriBerta for African languages using deep learning techniques. So this is about to paper titled Small Data, No Problem, Exploring the Viability of Pre-trained Multilingual Language Models for Low-Resourced Languages, kind of a fun title. And yeah, basically it's all about how these researchers, instead of uh, doing what is often done uh, now or has been done, is training sort of massive multilingual models that have a ton of data and are trained on you know 100 languages, something like that. Here they have AfriBerda, which has 11 African languages and is trained on less than one gigabyte of text total. So far less than usual. We usually have hundreds of gigabytes, even terabytes of data. Here it's much more uh, small data. And their results are quite positive. They, they show that this works uh, basically on par or better than some of these gigantic models that are trained on many more languages. So yeah, really, really cool research and, and nice to see more work on low resource languages, which has been kind of not done in NLP as much until uh, more recently. Yeah, and as expected, uh, they found that using, you know, training models with more than 10 layers didn't really result in uh, improvements in performance because the uh, the data sets were so small. So having a smaller model actually uh, was enough um, to, to learn some of these things. Um, but something that was counterintuitive that was interesting is that traditionally people thought, you know, we can use a small vocabulary size for small data sets. Um, but through the testing of these models, they actually found that increasing the vocab size actually could improve the performance of the multilingual model uh, quite a bit through this method. 
Yeah, yeah, we have some interesting findings. Uh, we have these uh, 13 languages, and one of our findings is also that you know having the similarity of the languages matters. So this is 13 African languages uh, that, of course, are more similar to each other than to something like English. And in fact, they show that this helps. And there's been some other research that shows that actually there can be sort of catastrophic learning where if you mix different languages, it can hurt some of these low resource languages. Yeah, so yeah, definitely cool, cool research and nice to see more work on, you know, NLP beyond English, uh, which, you know, we have a lot of that and there's a lot more languages out there in the world. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and our next article in research is AI skin cancer diagnoses risk being less accurate for dark skin, a study. Uh, and so this is based on the uh, the paper in The Lancet, Characteristics of Publicly Available Skin Cancer Image Datasets, a Systematic Review. Uh, so this was a review paper, and it was um, aimed to identify and evaluate all the publicly available skin image datasets that are used for skin cancer diagnosis. And um, basically, the authors combed through, you know, Google, Google Dataset Search, Medline, and found 21 open datasets that included a total of 100, uh, nearly 107,000 skin lesion images um, and uh, eight regulated access data sets, uh, three regulated access atlases, just a lot of data out there. Um, and, and ultimately, the authors found, you know, just just around 2,500 of the total nearly 107,000 images within those 21 databases that had the skin type recorded. So not much was being recorded. And actually, only 10 images were from people who, you know, that was recorded had brown skin um, and one person who said they had, you know, dark brown or black skin. Um, so, you know, not a great, not a great distribution in terms of labeling that. Um, it's also unclear, you know, how, uh, how well algorithms can build on this or like whether people felt, um, felt like that was something to code for, but it, it's clearly um, missing um, in terms of uh, where data sets are concerned. And this is very concerning for, you know, downstream models that are being produced that say, you know, we can, we could do all this like skin lesion identification, but, but for whom, right? And so this is not necessarily for the entire population. Exactly. Yeah. This was pretty surprising to me, just how few of these data sets had this sort of metadata, as you said, very few had, uh, you know, a skin type, uh, even fewer had uh, data on the ethnicity instead of a skin type. So no um, information about, you know, where they're from. There were actually no images with tagged as being African, African Caribbean or South Asian. And, uh, you know, we've discussed some of these kinds of things before. When you're learning for medical diagnosis, it matters that you don't over um, overfit to a certain population, right? You want it to generalize and not work better for white people and, you know, worse for other types of people. And if your data sets are imbalanced, as appears to be maybe the case, I would imagine there's a pretty good likelihood of issues coming about. And the degree to which there's just no documentation here. You know, there is documentation for age, 
sex in about 80% of this stuff, but uh, skin type and ethnicity were not, which to me seems pretty weird. Uh, I don't know if you find this as surprising as I do, Sharon. Um, I think I would have expected people to code it a bit more. Um, I wonder if people felt uncomfortable coding it because it would feel like they're emphasizing race too much or ethnicity too much. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, it's also not too clear. You know, maybe some of these are maybe just focused on the country we're from. So some of these are, you know, maybe from South Korea, for instance, and not meant to be more global. So they're less kind of concerned about this uh, or something like that. Um, or maybe these are just smaller public data sets not meant to be sort of used for real applications. But it does seem like something that, uh, you know, for large data sets, people actually build models from presumably would be really needed. And on to another story, moving on to our society and ethics uh, news, we have a pretty, uh, to me, I don't know, negative story. We have Israel escalates surveillance of Palestinians with facial recognition program in West Bank. And this is from the Washington Post. So this is a pretty detailed report on how the Israeli military has been conducting a broad surveillance effort in the West Bank to monitor Palestinians by integrating facial recognition with a growing network of cameras and smartphones. And this was um, according to descriptions by recent Israeli soldiers. So this has been rolled out over the past two years and uh, is part of the smartphone technology called Blue Wolf that apparently captures photos of Palestinians' faces and matches them to a database of images so extensive that one of these soldiers described it as the army's secret Facebook for Palestinians. And apparently this app flashes in different colors to alert soldiers if a person is to be detained, arrested, or left alone. And to build the database, soldiers competed last year in photographing, uh, photographing Palestinians, including children and the elderly, with prizes for most pictures collected by each unit. And the total number of people is not clear, but, you know, is, is pretty high, presumably. Well, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, wow. I'm actually surprised this didn't bubble up into the news earlier. Uh, this, you know, um, <laughs> this seems like quite a quite a big deal that's been going on for a, a while now. And um yeah, uh, I mean, this is definitely, um, this definitely, you know, increases conflict and um, I mean, sure, it helps some triage people, but it, it can be concerning and uh, it does make me wonder what they're, you know, like with false positives, as with any technology here, what, what that looks like. Um, yeah. Yeah, and there's even more to this beyond this uh, Blue Wolf app. The Israeli military has also installed face scanning cameras in the divided city of Hebron to help uh, soldiers at checkpoints, even before uh, people like Palestinians uh, present their ID cards. So it's, yeah, it's quite an expansion. And I think, you know, within... Uh, the area of facial recognition, this seems like one of the m bigger efforts at facial recognition surveillance we've heard of. 
so yeah, I agree that this seems like kind of a big deal. And maybe the story is coming in now because it's actually being deployed and, um, you know, it, it's not meant to be public, but apparently these former soldiers who were interviewed uh, spoke with Breaking the Silence, an advocacy group uh, composed of Israeli army veterans that opposed the occupation. So I think this is not meant to be public, but is kind of getting out there now. Right, right. How does this compare to Clearview, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, yeah, I guess it's it's interesting also that, you know, we do have Clearview here and uh, this article also notes that within Israel, there's actually been proposals that were rejected for uh, law enforcement having facial recognition cameras in public, uh, which was rejected with a lot of opposition. So this is another example of how things are really quite complicated over, you know, in, in the West Bank, as we've known, and, and now AI is getting in there and making things even more tangled. You know, um, Sharon, I feel like doing this podcast, we've talked a lot, of, a lot about different ethical and societal concerns. And my impression has been that the most prominent and I guess pressing issue is facial recognition from all we've discussed. I wonder if you have a similar kind of feeling. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely the most concerning one, I think, uh, in terms of how the public feels like it's being used against them. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I do see how, you know, like their security measures and it helps with security in some way. But um, I think much more needs to be vetted on that side and much more work needs to be done. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of proliferating everywhere. We've also talked about China, Moscow, even the US. So it's definitely just a thing that's being deployed. And I think maybe not enough people are quite aware of the scale of this thing that's growing. Right, right. And on to our next article, a Tesla vehicle in, quote, full self-driving beta mode is severely damaged after crash in California. All right. So FSD, the full self-driving um, beta mode, uh, unfortunately resulted in a pretty bad crash uh, by a Tesla Model Y uh, on November 3rd um, in South uh, city southeast of Los Angeles. Um, and this is probably the first um, incident involving this uh, this feature that was released uh, uh, fairly recently and the car was really damaged but um, I think no one no one was uh, really really hurt uh, in the crash um, but the car itself was severely damaged uh, and what happened was um, the uh, the car, you know, self-driving wise, um, was taking a left turn, but went into the wrong lane. Um, and it was, you know, hit by another driver in the lane next to that lane. Uh, and the car did actually give an alert halfway through the turn, um, that something was going wrong. And the driver, uh, did take over the wheel and try to avoid it. But, um, the car actually took control and forced itself into the incorrect lane. Um, and that created a really unsafe maneuver. Um, and so, so yeah, that's uh, pretty scary. The car was actually damaged on the driver's side, which I think like when it comes to human drivers is, is a less likely place for it to actually be hurt. And so, um, 
so yeah, that's that's kind of what happened. Yeah, yeah. This was uh, according to a report to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. I think the report was by the driver. I guess there is an investigation ongoing, but the thesis is what we know. Uh, yeah, pretty pretty bad. Sounds like uh, there's been some other talking of beta FSD having some issues, especially with left turns. And it does call into question whether you really want to have better, you know, an opt-in beta where anyone with a Tesla and a, and a good enough like safety score can just use this potentially buggy software. Um, so yeah, I think kind of not a great sign for this idea of a public beta <laughs> looks like to me. Yeah, I mean, this is inevitable um, in terms of what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, it's 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 one inevitable, but it is bad that it is happening in this way. Um, and and yeah, I, I just wish like more safety was being thought about because <laughs> these are real lives at stake. Uh, that said, um, I did. uh I, I remember talking to uh, someone about this, but basically Tesla does try really hard to um, make it so that, you know, it's okay for the, uh, it's okay for the car to get kind of smushed as long as the passenger is safe. So it's possible that, you know, that's kind of the trade-off that's being made um, with the way they design the vehicles. I can't completely confirm that, but, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this is a little tricky. Um, you know, I think having a public beta for self-driving software could make sense. I mean, at some point you got to put it out in the real world and maybe having it exclusive to safer drivers makes sense, which is what they're doing. But I guess the question is how much quality control are they doing before releasing the software in terms of making sure there's no bugs on their own. And if things like this happen where it's a pretty bad situation uh, that does call into question kind of how uh, carefully they're going about it. But we'll see. We'll see. Right. And away from these uh, forny society ethics things onto our final more fun stories. First up, we have CMU opens first AI makerspace to let students sharpen the cutting edge of AI. So CMU uh, on Wednesday opened what it says is the first makerspace devoted to software. So it's going to be more focused on things like computer vision, speech recognition, and uh, AI. And uh, there's a picture of it. We'll, we'll post it. It's like a nice, I guess, large room with tables and like a little kitchen and a TV. Uh, I don't know if people know from we had this makerspaces are basically things where engineering students can hang out and, you know, make stuff, right? Uh, usually with a lot of 3D printers and I don't know, like electro um, electronic stuff and sometimes mechanical tools. But here there doesn't seem to be any of that yet. It's, it's for software, which is a little confusing. Yeah, uh, I admit, I was kind of confused why they said this was like the first makerspace for AI. Um, I fine. <laughs> That's that that feels hypey. Uh, unless they outfit it with like insane compute power all around, which I don't see in the photo. Um, I 
I'm like, okay, that's just another, I don't know, empty broom <laughs> to do AI in. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. The thing about software is any space is a makerspace. <laughs> you, know, you can uh, work on a couch in like the uh, student center and, and that's fine. But it's nice to have a dedicated space where, you know, you can hang out and, and work on things. And uh, I'm a big fan of makerspaces. I've used a lot of 3D printing stuff at Stanford and Georgia Tech. So whether it's weird or not, I'm glad that they invested in you know, a space for students to do fun things. And on to our last super fun article, uh, machine learning shushes stress dogs. Okay, so um, yes, this is what you think. Uh, so there's a really small neural network that detects when a dog barks and it is currently um, hooked up to an Arduino that plays a soothing, you know, sound bite um, to the dog. Uh, and this is kind of a cute um, little project that someone came up with. And uh, turns out it is maybe working a little bit. <laughs> yeah, this is really fun. So this guy, Nathaniel uh, Falick, posted this uh, YouTube video where he showed that, you know, this dog can get pretty barky at the door. And so when the device detects it, it plays a soundbite of... Uh, the family's mom praising or scolding this little dog, which is a cute, you know, little white fluffy dog. It's it's quite adorable. And uh, yeah, there's a demo. It, it actually makes the dog be quiet. <laughs> uh, and um, it's, yeah, cool project. Uh, nice to see that you can actually deploy these little things you know, it's, it's not using much compute. It's a very small kind of train network on an Arduino, which is interesting. So yeah, really fun. And we'll link that video in the description. You should check it out. Yeah, I think one of the funniest comments is uh, related to this. Someone said, I leave a radio tune to talk station for my dog. <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. <laughs> and related to this, you know, it's reasonable. It's understandable. I've had a dog before. So, um, yeah, mm. that's a cute little hack. And maybe I can build in something bigger. Yeah, I could see there being like AI products for, you know, Absolutely. So tracking your dog uh, or pet, but also, I don't know, interacting with them and stuff like that. I think an, a companion, right? I think that would be very, very mm -hmm. true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Got to keep them occupied. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe I should try and build this for my dogs. They can get pretty barky. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, this is key too, because it's this dog apparently has separation anxiety. So it barks, you know, with a door. Yeah. If the person isn't there. So it's, yeah, it's a nice, nice application of AI. Feels good. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast. You can find the articles we discuss here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at lastweekend.ai. And also please check out Clever FM, who, uh, you know, we're friends with and um, we're putting our podcast out there and it makes it easier for you to leave feedback or highlight bits of the f podcast that you like. Yeah, yeah. It's quite nifty. Uh, I, I kind of actually quite like it. It has, you know, images and links of what we talk about embedded in a timeline, sort of like YouTube uh, has a little time 
things in the player, but a little better because of Airs actually. So yeah, give it a look, clever.fm. And of course, as always, also subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. And please give us a review. I think we're up to like five or six on Apple. So I think we could probably do a bit better. <laughs> Make us do better. <laughs> please. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Be sure to tune in next week. <laughs> yeah. Tune in next week.